Because until you explore, you don't necessarily know what it is that you love either. We've changed people's lives just through sharing our knowledge with them. Your team's only as good as you are. If you're sad, they're sad. If you're angry, they're angry. Hello and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast, sponsored by ClearCom. ClearCom is the leader in voice communications for theatre and the performing arts. From the Broadway stage to the West End to Cirque du Soleil, ClearCom brings seamless communication solutions to your stage. The Theatre Art Life podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Kat Landry. And my name is Anna Aguilera. Today we're joined by Kylie McComish and she'll be sharing with us about her interesting live producing events in live entertainment. Kylie is a passionate and talented ambassador for the arts, major events, culture and destination development. She is a trusted leader in strategic planning and the delivery of high-profile international events, productions, and location activations. Her skills in a cross-site coordination and development, human resources, contractor engagement, stakeholder management, finance, budget administration, and strategic planning have made her an invaluable addition to international executive leadership teams. With such a vast background in performing arts and cultural programs, Kylie is a wealth of knowledge in this area of the industry and a born leader. Kylie, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. And thank you, Kat. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here today. And I'd just like to begin today by acknowledging the Wanderbar people who are the traditional custodians of the land of which today I'm broadcasting this podcast for Theatre Art Life from, um, to pay my respects to their elders past and present. I've extended the respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. So thank you very much. Thank you. Kylie, could you start off by telling us a little bit of the story that led you to where you are today? When did you first catch the entertainment bug and what's life been like since then? Well, I think (laughs) the entertainment bug, it's a great way to explain it. It's like sometimes I feel like a bug as you zip around in all these places. But I think my, um, I think it's, I think really I was, it's always been a part of me. I don't think there's been any time in my life when there's some part of arts or culture that hasn't been around me. From very, very early, as a small child, we lived behind a ceramic shop and my mum was a ceramicist and she um, used to paint amazing pictures and make porcelain dolls. So like very unusual place to sort of think that that's where you started from. But I think it's always been around me, some part of creating, creation, and then my grandmother as well, who is an incredibly influential woman in my life, is still alive today. She's 92, uh, living the dream that she does out in her little country house. But definitely they're influential women in my life, my mum and my grandmother. And from from very young age, was a singer, read music, played music, was in the drama school band. And I think we all go through that part and I just continued to do it. It was a part of choirs. And I guess... Yeah, I just look back and I think it was just always around me and that's what's created who I am today. And when did it become from like a day-to-day child activity to a profession? I think I thought I was going to be a singer. (laughs) Um, If I look back, I think 
I think that I thought when I was probably 16 or 15 that oh, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to be a singer on a stage. And then reality kind of hits, right? You do your Steadfords and you do all these things and then reality hits. And when I finished high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do then. And part of me went, well, I lived in a small country town. I come from regional Queensland, central Queensland, a place called Rockhampton. And there was not a lot on offer. Like everything that I did was an extracurricular activity from school. So when I finished high school, I didn't really know what else that you could be. So I just thought it was a drama teacher. I think that was the only thing that I thought I could actually be. And then I was like, oh, I don't really know if that's right for me. So I actually went and just got a job in a shop for four or five years. And I became a visual merchandiser for this company, which then when I look back now, it's kind of like that was just pushing me somewhere as well. And I, I see I was dressing a window up in Townsville in North Queensland and this woman walked past and she was very eccentric looking, had these wonderful clothes on, looked fabulous. And I just looked out and I was like, what am I doing? Like, what am I actually standing in this window, dressing a window with T-shirts and socks and lava lamps and crazy things like that? So I went over to the boss and said, look, I'm leaving. I'm actually going to go back to university. And so in 1994, I then went to uni and started studying at Griffith Uni and started doing a theatre degree which then opened the doors for, yes, I did think I was going to be an actor in the beginning, but then that changed very quickly as well and I just found the love of backstage and that was it. It was like jump on these tools and let's build some things, let's create some shows, let's do some lighting. So I really had such a vast experience at university with a, with a degree that showed you all the moving parts of what you could could potentially do. Which then, as I understand it, aided you in becoming a stage manager, correct? Correct. Yeah, I owned my own company for a while um, and did sort of small community projects in and around the Gold Coast, uh, Brisbane areas in Queensland. And then I worked, I got a job on in 20, uh, 2006 on the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne uh, as a stage manager in circus. And I'd already been sort of dabbling in the circus space at festivals by programming circus acts and running the big top tent and um, at Woodford Folk Festival and this opportunity came up and I just said to my husband, I said, I'm going, I'm going to go to Melbourne. And we lived like two and a half thousand kilometres away from Melbourne. And he's like, oh, right, okay. And it was a nine-week job. And then that actually was the turning point for everything. I worked at the National Institute of Circus Arts then for four years that then rolled into Opera Australia stage management and the likes. But, you know, without having a husband and a supporting family and that village that you need around you when you start that touring part of your life it you know it makes it very challenging and I was very very lucky not to have to deal with that part of life that that everyone was on board and supporting me because at that time as well my daughter was six years old so there was a lot a lot to manage as starting on that travel bug and that travel journey to to which has pushed me where I am that's awesome yeah do you want to tell us a little bit about your time uh working with Opera Australia Yes, yeah, so a funny story how I started with Opera Australia, actually. I was working in, I had finished working at the National Institute of Circus Arts after some time and I was a bit in limbo, didn't really know what was next for me. I'd been a technical officer at in the circus school, which was supporting uh, circus acts, getting their show reel together, basically. So costume, lightings, all of those kinds of things, which was super fun. But I just kind of got to a bit of a dead end. So I was at in a bit of a crossroads of where I wanted to be and so I just took a lighting gig at um, the Melbourne Arts Centre and I was the OP dome operator 
which is the most horrible position to ever have to be in the OP boom box, shoved up against the wall, holding a follow spot. And it was a, it was an opera Australia show. Um, and it was my fair lady, um, musical. So I was just out the back chatting away to the stage manager who was on the gig and she's just like, Oh, we're really finding it really hard to find stage managers. You know, you don't happen to know anyone, do you? And I just looked and I said, well, I'm a stage manager. I call shows. I can manage a stage. But I'd never actually really done stage management like opera stage management. And I was like, yeah, no worries. I can do it. I can read music. All good. Anyway, they offered me a job and I then went to Sydney from Melbourne. My husband and daughter stayed in uh, Melbourne until, you know, we worked out if it was going to be a full-time job or not. And I went up there and I called my first three operas and everything was fine until the orchestra came. (laughs) And then I was like, so it went from a piano to a full-blown 60-piece orchestra, Don Giovanni, and I was absolutely blown away by the sound that I was hearing and it was nearly so overwhelming that I couldn't do the job. I couldn't follow the music. I couldn't, and obviously I did do it, but it was the most overwhelming I think the most overwhelming part of my career, actually, that moment in time when that orchestra started for the first time and we're starting a show that we had run so many times with a piano, but when that orchestra had come in. So I guess, you know, I'm not a trained stage manager, if if that's the way, you know, we, we use the terms today. I didn't study stage management in university level to, to get all of that sort of knowledge that a lot of people get when they do study stage management at uni. So I really threw myself in the deep end, but I think it's, it was a challenge. It was, I knew that it was going to be something of scale. And that's why I actually love opera. I knew that it was going to push me to another level in my career. And I just persisted with it and I did everything that I could. I had a, a violinist that came and sat with me and really helped me to call the show when I was in my off hours of the show I'd sit in a little room and I'd just practice and practice and practice and you know I know now looking back after doing about three operas that it was just like "Mm, practicing is good Kylie but practicing is not everything because you need to listen to the music because the conductor might slow down or that you know and you're there going one two three four five six one you know and it's like all of a sudden the conductor has a bad day and he's just like (laughs) conducting away in a different sort of pace to what's normally there but you know it was it was a turning point of my career and then you know I stayed there for six years calling so working in a rep-based opera company so Opera Australia is they do rep what the what we call rep theatre so in some weeks you could call four different operas um, at the Sydney Opera House they we change over very fast and very quick and you could be in rehearsals all day jump into the theatre that night call a show the next day you're doing a piano dress for the show that's on next week. So it was an incredibly fast-paced environment, but the learnings over that period of six years were massive for me. And then I was very, very lucky that the opera company, and also due to funding, I think, that things changed. There was a very big switch in how arts organisations were funded in Australia around the sort of the mid-2000s, and that was due to sorry, the late 2000s actually, and that was just purely due to government change and funding and the like. So the opera company had to start to branch out to extend, I guess, from main stage into other environments. Uh, And I was lucky to be given the opportunity to become a producer and it was actually something that they noticed 
that I potentially would be a good producer for them. And I then had the opportunity to hand off on Sydney Harbour, which is now still uh, still running today. I'm actually going uh, next week to opening night on Friday night in Sydney, which is very exciting. It's the Madam Butterfly, which I was actually a producer on this particular Madam Butterfly. So it's nice to go back and see the same shows being sort of um, remounted again. And, yeah, I've done did a lot of fun projects in Indigenous communities in North Queensland, choir programs, opera on the beach up in Queensland. Um, so that was, that was really a tr- big transition and turning point for me. That's great. That's wonderful. What's, what are some learnings that you took from these years in circus and these years in opera that have informed your later career? Yeah, I guess when you, when, you know, when we talk about learnings and um, I, I think for me it's more knowledge, I guess. Like it's, it's the, the amount of knowledge that you can gather and, and hold on to that you can then pull out at any time that you need from the multiple different spaces that I've been in, from community arts to festivals to main stage to, you know, rep opera to musicals to, you know, a circus. It's each one of them has their own own little way of working, but they still are bound by a very same way of working in, 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 a, in a way. And I think what makes you a great, great, what makes you a great leader is that, you can draw upon this wealth of information and this experience. And I know that, um, you know, one thing that just comes to mind, and it was actually from uh, working at Expo, and Kat, you'll remember this very well, is that we had a chief who was very much, from a direction perspective, really thought that if he had a group of people who had this really vast knowledge and were um, multi, multi-skilled, that we would have a great team. And that's actually how we built that team. We weren't necessarily looking for stage managers to come in and work with us, but we were looking for people who were very well respected, I guess, in their field of work, but were really happy to use that skill and extend it across multiple different parts of of working in such a huge organisation. And I I could still hear him saying this every time we'd interview somebody. It's like, yeah, but can they do it all? It's like, and that's actually what we ended up creating was this team of people that if someone was Away from the operations team that they could nearly that somebody in that department could jump in and be the stage management team or somebody could jump in and be a producer or a production manager and I think that's the type of um, skills that you get to go back to answering that question it's that's the type of skills that you get and the knowledge that you can bring to the table when you have a really broad work in broad genre of of the industry and I encourage that as well to younger people like I try and you know make sure that people are not putting themselves in a box too much um, because I think it's really important to explore because until you explore, you don't necessarily know what it is that you love either. Well, let me tell you, I never felt like I was in a box at Expo. <laughs> <laughs> 50 boxes maybe, Kat, 50 boxes. <laughs> maybe 50, maybe 50. Um, so that actually brings us to our next question for you, which is, what led to your first international gig? Because I think your first one was in Saudi Arabia, correct? No, actually, my first gig was in 2008. And it was the opening of Ferrari World in Abu Dhabi. And it was, I, this sometimes is hidden in my 
in my information somewhere because it was I was actually working for Opera Australia at the time and I got a call from Gavin Robbins, who was the director of um, the movement director and the aerial director for this particular opening, which was a year before. It was it was before Ferrari World opened because it opened in 2009. Um, and anyway, he gave me a call and the show had circus, opera and orchestras in it. And he was like, do you know a stage manager or somebody that can come on board with this? And he's just like, well, there's only one person in the con- in, that I know that does all of those things at the time. And so he, they gave me a call and I went to my boss at Opera Australia and said, look, can I just go away and do this crazy gig for like one month? So they let me just jump out and somebody covered me for a month and I went over there. And basically it was it was the opening of Ferrari World for the Royal Shakes. It was a private event. It was a one show and I arrived in Dubai and was literally given a brief. I was the tour manager, the company manager, the production manager, the show caller, the stage manager and the – actually, that's probably about it. That's enough anyway. It was it was hectic. I was in four countries, four countries in four weeks, and so the creative development was in Milan, and then I went over to Berlin to do the era rehearsals and then um, went back to the UAE and three countries actually in in four weeks and it was an absolute whirlwind of an event it was very very large scale I mean there was a lot of what not to do that I learned on that project and it was it was time actually is what it was and it was time building a event space in a location that was not finished from a construction perspective as Ferrari World, which is what it was, and we were trying to overlap with this event that was had been booked in the diaries of all the royal families um, to be at that time, so we had to make it work. Uh, but, yeah, it went off. It was, you know, you can check it out on YouTube today. It's still there. Um, <laughs> but it's um, it, that was kind of what kicked it off, and I guess I had a bit of a love for what I knew was my love of opera, which was the scale of opera is why I was there for so long and, you know, returning there now for, for, for this new appointment as well. But it's, I think it was, it's definitely the scale of what happens in the Middle East that has kept me there for, you know, what is nearly a decade as well, post sort of going back after this and then having quite a big period of time. It was like six years until then I ventured it out again after that. So you start working then in Saudi in 2015, right? Yeah, I started working um, on uh, the King Abdulli Centre for World Culture, which is a, a corporate social responsibility of Aramco, the oil company, to build a cultural precinct for not only the people that work for Aramco, which is a very, very large community, um, but also for the locals. So, yeah, I went over there to do the startup program um, for that, which was to be there from the build all the way through for the theatre and the cinema were the two areas that sat um, in the department that I was in. And it was actually the first theatre ever opened in Saudi Arabia for mixed seating, which has its, definitely has its challenges, that's for sure. Uh, but it was a very rewarding project. It took longer than anticipated, which is why you see that, um, uh, that little interim Commonwealth Games stint back on the Gold Coast in the middle of it all because the building, the construction side, again, was delayed. And I just went to my boss and said, look, can I just go home for a year and come back? Because it was quite delayed. There was a lot of sort of, as, as there is with any new construction um, in the Middle East. Uh, so, yeah, I came home and then I went back and 
opened it after that and ran the first 11 productions, trained all the staff. Very interesting product, I guess, for them that the whole theatre is run by volunteers when, when it's open. So planning team, producing team, that sits in the office. But then when it's open and operational, all the front of house staff are all volunteers. So, you know, that also had we had to take time to train and, and to make sure that they had all the skills that they needed in quite a difficult environment uh, where people are not used to taking a number of a seat or sitting next to a male if you're not, it's not your family. So th- there was there was quite a few challenges that we had to get past. But I think listening and respecting the culture were the two things that, that got it across the line and then people felt very safe. And I think a lot of the time it's actually about safety. Um, in those changing times in Saudi. Absolutely. You mentioned that this was one of the first venues that offered mixed seating. Could you explain to our listeners what that means and what the significance of that is? Yeah, so in the past, um, I guess prior to that, any public or social event, uh, male and females did not sit together. So they, you would have male areas, you would have female areas, or and or you would have family areas. but the male and female did never mix with the family either. So, well, obviously there's a family makeup within that, but as as the, the the distinctive areas of male and female. So it was a it was it and you know in the beginning it was it was not actually received very well, and there was times when we reverted back to looking at it again as a okay is this a male and a female section, and then you know equality starts to come in to the piece, and we all sit in a theatre. And where you sit in the theatre, theatre is actually really important, right? So, but I paid premium tickets, or I need um, some accessible support. So, it, when we started to really work through it with with you know people from the local, um, all the local different departments that we needed to work with on it, they really started to understand that this is an environment in which it's very safe. You are sitting in a seat. You are ushered into the seat. If you need to get up for any reason, you can, and someone will show you out. So when we took them through all of the moving parts to it, I think it was allowed to happen, and then it was only purely through success and the evaluating and monitoring that happened about that this is actually a safe space for these people to be. And, you know, this is me talking from an expat, a white expat, you know, living in their community as well and working with them. But we did see the joy that it did bring to all the audiences and, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we do what we do is at the end it's it's the audience that we are there to entertain or, you know, provide information to and if they get what they need from that then it's a success. But, yeah, it's really about the, that seating component is actually it was purely males and females never sat together in a social or public space. That's pretty huge. It, yeah, it is huge. <laughs> There's like about eight years now. How do you feel that culture has changed from opening the first venue that had mixed it into what they have today? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, it's changed dramatically. I do a bit of um, consultancy work um, in KSA still at the moment and some of those consultancy jobs are for some of the biggest festivals that are coming out of there at the moment, Soundstorm, for an example, and you just see some of the imagery of the youth that are at that festival and you wouldn't even think that what I just talked about was within a 10-year window. Like you wouldn't even think that that it was existed. So, I mean, it is, it's is—it's been part of their plan though. I mean, 
I think the 2030 vision is such a big piece of work that that country has really been striving for. And I guess when I started in 2015, it was quite new, the 2030 vision, and, you know, having read it and gone through it all. And there was things in there like women could drive cars, you know, that was going to be allowed as part of the 2030 vision. And when I first started there, that was definitely not the case. And um, when I went back in 2018, I was one of the first women on the road in Saudi Arabia in a car. So it, I saw big change happen as well and it was a part of those big changes. And now going back, and I was just there in July last year, there are still, they still have, and I don't want to say it's a long way to go because I think that's probably, I would actually say that that's a bit disrespectful to, to the country because, that you know, it's their own country. That's how they live and, you know, to be respectful to the people that live there and their religious you know, um, their religion is really important and I think that's one of the reasons why you can be successful in that country is if you are respectful to to that and you don't, you know, we, we shouldn't be going in there and trying to make it like we do festivals and rock concerts. It's got to grow at the, the right pace for them. And I think if you talk to some locals, they may say it's too fast and that's purely because it's been, you know, we're talking about the 2000s, you know, it's it's like, this is like these such big changes that to a lot of uh, Westerners or, you know, it's it's seen as hard to understand or comprehend that because we've been going seeing shows or theatres or, you know, mixing males and females all of our lives. Like we've never had that. So I think these changes are such big changes that for some it, it is fast and then for others they are just and the younger generations are lapping it up and I think um, the access for the younger people in Saudi Arabia for universities um, and what they can study now is also playing a big role in in how fast the country's moving. Their opportunities are much more than they've ever had before. And now a note from our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by ClearCom. ClearCom is the leader in voice communications for theatre and the performing arts. From the Broadway stage to the West End to Cirque du Soleil, ClearCom brings seamless communication solutions to your stage. You can find them at clearcom.com. Go check them out. Now, Kylie, your first international event was a show for the Royals in the UAE. And then you went on and you've, you've done many shows for many Royals since then. Um, could you tell us a little bit of the difference between working on a large government-led or royal-backed event versus working for an arts organization? What are the differences? What's the same? How do you feel about those? Yeah, I think in the end, for me, they're both they're two families. They're two types of families that we have. I guess in a government organization, you've, you're bound by more policy and procedure. Like at the end of the day, I think that's if you've got to put it in sort of small words, I think that's that's what it is without going into too much detail because all government organisations are all slightly different as well. Um, but I think generally speaking, you've got a lot more process and policies that you have to get across the line and approvals. Whereas in a smaller arts organisation, um, I can see your eyes like cut. The approvals. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think, you know, this is, it's something that, you know, the, that whole approval process, it's something that you have to really take into your stride in a schedule perspective. Because we're so used to just asking a question, getting approved. So in, in arts organizations or smaller organizations, 
But when you have to go up the ladder or up the chain of command to, to get an answer to something, you can add sometimes months onto a, a, any given project. So there's a lot of skill that comes with that negotiation as well. And I think that's something that um, I have learned and developed purely from being out there for, you know, particularly in the Middle East, um, in government organisations, that that is definitely part of your planning. Like you, if you think it's going to take two weeks, you need to add on to it in those government organisations. But, you know, in, in a smaller arts organisation, I think you have a bit more freedom to explore things because you, time is time's quite different. Um, and I think, you know, when I talk about the families, they're different families, like in the government organisation family, not everybody comes from your world. So there's a, quite a lot of that education piece and you're teaching along the way or you're explaining what's something that to, could seem quite small, um, or quite normal in our, in our world normally. That may take time as well. Whereas in an arts organisation, often everybody is talking the same language. Uh, so things can happen much quicker and um, understanding something um, is faster or, or, or easier. I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, working at Expo in the entertainment department, I feel like actually a lot of our job was translation and not translation of actual language, but translation of entertainment and our needs and our processes and our timelines to people who simply don't come from that world, but who we need uh, for their resources or their approval or whatever it might be. And, and actually what, what you're saying is, is totally accurate. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a game of trying to get people on the same level of understanding that when you're in an arts organization, everyone comes into already having um, and it's a it's a particular challenge, and it's kind of a joy too, honestly, to bring other people into our world, um, for lack of a better term. Um, but it definitely makes that process so much different. Yeah, and I think you know, just to add to that, it's it it's not for everybody either. I think that's something that you know people will either know very very soon from working on it, or as, as you said, you know, it can bring joy as well to for you to actually be sharing. Uh, parts of our world with people that would never have ever heard that before. And I think these very large scale international events, you know, I think we can check, we've changed people's lives just through sharing our knowledge with them. And some people we've seen cross over and, you know, they might have been in budget and finance for banks all their life. And then they got onto being in a finance team in a large international event. And then they, you know, the ceremonies part or the, you know, the arts and cultural part, it's like, actually, I want to work working that forever and we, we had someone like that in our our team at expo um and he was a local emirati who would never have thought that he would have ended up in arts and culture and now he never wants to leave he just wants to do finance and budgets for the arts and um, cultural programs which is which is yes, so, 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 so like nice <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely Anna. yeah so they understand the entertainment and the finance part and it's oh, oh beautiful. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, Kylie, since we're already talking about it, uh, you recently served as Vice President of Events and Entertainment for Expo 2020 Dubai. And for our listeners, uh, she also served as my boss. Could you tell us a little bit about the challenges and rewards on that particular event? Do you know, it's been nearly a year <laughs> since Expo's finished. And 
I always say to people after I do any event, there's a narrative that you, you have about that event. And it's, you know, someone asks you how how was that event, you can just go, blah, 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 blah. That's how that event was. And you you, you know how to say it. I still today, a year out, don't really have a narrative to explain the challenges or the issues or the event or how I feel. And I think the best, like I have these visuals though that are literally, it's like a comic, comical, like a comic in a magazine where there's someone who just like comes home, they slide into bed, they roll out the other side, they get back up, they go, they roll into bed, they get up. they And it's like this, just this thing that happened, but that happened for months and months and months, like probably 10 months of my life was like that. So I think, Physically, I think the role was very challenging. Like I think what the toll on the body took was real. And I think even for others in, you know, in our teams, we, we saw this along the way. And this is, you know, it, it was a mar- like it was more than a marathon. Like I can't even, it was, it was the hardest thing that I've ever put my, challenged myself with, I guess. Cause at the end of the day, you're the only person who makes that decision whether you want to be there and still continue with that, that's completely an individual human's uh, responsibility to themselves. But I did want to be there and I did want to see it out and I did want to, um, you know, get to the end of it. And I think the challenges along the way, patience was something that was pra- that needed to be practised every day and that comes back to, I think, you know, part of that conversation we were just having about learning you know, and teaching and sh- having to show people sometimes what we did instead of just doing, which can can get frustrating. So I think patience, definitely trust needed to be there. And I think, you know, when I say trust, trust on all levels, trust on your team who are your direct, because um, the scale of the information was so, so large that there is no one human being that could ever, ever know all of that information. So it's that, you know, often you hear this saying sometimes you don't need to know everything. I think that was really, really true and at the forefront of the work that we did is just and not stay in your lane. Like it's not as it's not as direct as that. It's like you don't need to know everything that's going on in the whole department, but in your group, which was all which was even large anyway, know everything that's going on in there. So I think, yeah, trust and patience and finding the joy and finding the smile and the happy place. When <laughs> that cartoon character is rolling in and bed and rolling back out again, is actually having a smile on your face because, as a leader, your t- team's only as good as you are. If you're sad, they're sad. If you're angry, they're angry. And in that environment, that was a very obvious emotion. Those emotions were very obviously picked up. So when somebody was feeling down or there was some issue or there was something, a challenge for somebody, that it really did knock on in the department because we were so so close um, as a family and there was 80 people in the production and operations team which is is a, is a large team anyway um, out of the 200 that were in the whole events and entertainment department so um, but I think with a lot of fun and a lot of joy we got through it in the end we did <laughs> yeah. and I wouldn't give it I wouldn't say that I um, you know sometimes you get asked the question oh if you if you could go back would you have still done that and I absolutely 100% me too. Yeah. <laughs> and then you decided to go back to Australia. Yeah, so I guess, you know, we don't really talk about COVID much anymore, I, I feel. I mean, sometimes it pops up, but I think it's sort of, well, a lot of people try and push, sort of push it away. But I think as an international 
arts worker, I think that COVID did impact the way that in which I think now about being away from home. You know, Australia is a long way away from anywhere. There's there's nowhere really that's, you know, within eight hours away by plane. So, and most of the places that I've lived, lived in, you know, 24 hours it takes to get door to door. And I think COVID just really made it very real, the distance. Because not only are we still, we are so far away, but there was all these other things that I had no control over at all, which were how many people can come in to the country on flights. You know, can you even get a flight? The flights are five times as much as what they normally would be. So there were so many factors in even just being able to come home. So I think after Expo had finished, I did have quite, you know, opportunities to stay um, in the region. And I, I decided that there was sort of three words that were going to drive any next steps for me and that was work-life balance and those three things I even had at a point where I was tallying up a hundred points for each for each job that I was thinking about doing now does it how much what sort of work is this job oh yeah that's a hundred that'll get a hundred what sort of balance is this job well that's like a 20 (laughs) what sort of life experience am I going to get out of this so and I actually had to do that because my brain was so so tired after expo and then I really just decided after thinking about other jobs, I was just like, Do you know what? No, just just go home, take some time. Um, I, I live on a beautiful, um, as I mentioned earlier, with the acknowledgement to country, Wanjabara land, which means uh, the land of uh, pretty-faced wallabies. And I live on five acres of land here in Australia and we have wallabies all on our land every day and it was such a great place for me to come home and rest and just be in nature, be in the green um, not being in a desert. And, you know, visuals are a huge part of our lives. I think working in, in this industry, we are visually stimulated and I felt like I needed to come home for that to refuel and see my family and just spend some time. Uh, my husband um, and I came home to renovate our house as well. So we kind of rested. You could say rested, but we've been renovating our house. We're still renovating our house. Um, <laughs> it's taken longer than we imagined. Um, but our daughter also is here and she's also from the industry. She's a makeup artist and she is living her best life in Sydney. So we really didn't want to miss much more of that and spend some time back home. So it's been really nice to be somewhere safe to to refuel. That's so nice. I'm really happy for you. What about the new role? So you have returned to opera. Could you tell us what are your next steps? Yeah, I think part of that refueling the body and refueling the mind after being on such sort of large scale projects for such a long period of time was that if I was going to stay here and work for a period of time, it was about giving back uh, to my community um, that I have been vacant from for a long time. So not only have I been vacant from this state for the period I've been overseas, but I've been vacant from this state since we left in 2005. So it's been quite a long time since I've been on my home, back on my homeland and my home country. So, yeah, I think it was about giving back to the community. So this role came up, um, which is the Director for Learning Regional and Community, and the state of Queensland is such a large state. It's I think it's the size of um, Mexico, Indonesia and Mongolia, if you put them all together. Like that's just the state of Queensland. And my role is to, through music and song and opera, is to take it to these regional communities um, in some way, shape or form. So whether it's an education program, 
whether it's a performance, whether it's a festival, and yeah, and give give back to um, space, places that are very um, isolated. I went to one place um, to visit them in Kanamala, and the way to get there, it was it, it's fifteen hundred kilometers, and it was on a on a very very small plane that landed and took off six times in the one flight because it goes down like you're up for 20 minutes you go down to another small town you go up you go down um and then I was there for like an hour and a half for a meeting and then got back on the same plane and did the same thing on the way home so very very isolated um locations and when you go there you know it's that same thing the joy that they see we just put the magnet stickers on the sides of our car and where it says opera queensland and you know you're getting phone calls Opera, are you in town? What's happening? What's in? What's what's going on? Opera's in town, um, which is which is really really nice. Um, and there's a um, you know First Nations component of this work as well, um, which is a huge part of particularly this state in Queensland and acknowledging the people of the past and you know the sorry, saying sorry to, for what has happened to them and and rebuilding that. And Queensland is at the forefront of that actually. So good to hear. Beautiful to be like. I see them, people say close in circles, but I see them as spirals. And I think in your case, it's, it's also very, it, at least for me, very obvious spiral, like how you started with opera and then you're back again. And then you left and come back and, you know, like a number of times. And I find it very, very beautiful. And this idea of refueling in nature. Yeah, absolutely. And it does, it does feel like full circle. Like it really does feel like I've gone full circle. I've come back. This work is, you know, makes me feel really humble and that I can give back to communities. And also, you know, I think acknowledging that this is where people come from to be a part of this space as well. The state of Queensland has some very, you know, amazing people that work in the industry who've come from remote parts of this state. And to to just show a little bit to the school kids and you know, you might end up with another ten arts workers from from, you know, working in this space and you know, we know how important that is, um, particularly since COVID, since we've lost a lot of workers in the industry. Um, we could definitely do with a bit of an uplift and, and people wanting to, to come and be a part of, you know, what I've had s- such a vast and successful and, you know, loved my life and still do. You know, I guess I am very ambitious though. Like I don't ever, my brain doesn't necessarily stop. And, at, you know, this is a project for now. And I do have a big trajectory of like where I see myself and, Australia is what they're calling, I don't know if you've heard, but the, you know, they, they're saying down here it's the golden decade of um, sports events in this country. And there's over 16 events, which they're putting in the 10, the 10 year thing plan, which is the 2022 to 2032 with obviously the Olympics and the Paralympics being in 2032 in Brisbane, which is the capital city of the state that I live in. So there's 16 massive events. Commonwealth Games is in 2006. Uh, FIFA's on at the moment so it's a huge push and wherever there is sport in these major events there is arts and there is culture that is attached to it and I think this is going to be um, a very very exciting time here in this country and also for people that love to work in those ceremony spaces because there's going to be a lot of them down under. That's so awesome. Kylie we always end the podcast with the same two questions which we're going to ask you now. The first one is, what is your favorite thing about your job or about the industry as a whole? People and places. 
I think it's so, so like I actually, you know, it's one of those questions that you think about for a long time, but it's, that's actually really simple. It's the people and the places that keep, keep you, well, have kept me doing what I'm doing and people very, very direct to me, my husband and my daughter, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for them. He supported me as someone who left and would go away all the time working and stayed home. We all come from the same industry. So they understand very well what it means and they're super proud of who I am and what I do and and that's my direct sport. But with all the people and the places that I've been and the huge networks of people that you know, you always know that you will be safe and that you will um, have a place to go in any place in the world if you ever need it as well. And I think that's the beauty of, yeah, that's the beauty of what we do. Totally agreed. If you could change one thing about your job or the entertainment industry, what would you change? This one is actually a little bit harder to answer, I think, but I, and I think it's a little bit different for me in, I guess it's about pay grade and pay scale and HR policy. Um, that as much as I think in particular organizations, they try to do equality. I don't think across the broad brush strokes of it, there's necessarily equality and you know, there's never going to be an international standard for pay scale, and that's that's very much understood. But I think generally speaking, there is such a vast variety in country, on any country that I've ever worked, of of this exact thing, depending on who you're working for, depending on who you know, depending on, you know, and sometimes it's not necessarily about skill set. Um, but I also do think that there should be equality across it. If you're engaged as a production manager, for example, on any one gig, then all production managers that are on that gig should be paid within that. And if somebody is getting more than what that bandwidth allows for, then they're not a production manager anymore. They need to be given a title that is, and I think for me that is 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 really where I'd like to see change. Um, and I'm actually doing quite a bit of work on this at the moment in the Middle East um, with some companies and consulting um, to try and bring this together a bit because it is very varied and even across the you know, different countries of the GCC. Um, but it's important because as much as we like to think people don't talk about their salaries on the ground, people do talk about it. And particularly if someone gets upset or they're feeling like they're not being treated with respect or that they're not being given the level of work that's desirable for that role, then people start to talk. And I think when you have equality or you, and you have respect to the equality that sits within pay grade, then uh, you will have much happier people working in your teams. For sure, a healthier environment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Kylie, this has been great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kylie. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Kat. It's been wonderful to be here. Theater at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only $38 US per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.